0: This is the Documentary on One from RTE in Ireland. Just a note to say that the multi-award-winning Documentary on One is now available for sponsorship, both on radio and podcast. If you're interested, email documentaries at rte.ie for further information. And now to today's documentary. This is We Say You Have to Go.
1: It was my granddaughter found him. She was going on far. Bernie Howard's son, Stephen, died in the middle of the night. I just said, Grandad, Stephen's standing on the,
2: on the chairs with his eyes open and he won't talk to me.
1: That's why she got involved. Well, well we were on our own. I mean, what, what do you do? The houses on Maura Butterley's Dublin Street were being
3: broken into. You say, OK, we'll all give up and just let them rob our houses and walk over our streets and forget about it. That's why she got involved. Or do you say, we'd have to do something about this? And a number of us said, we're going to have to do something about this. We can't let this go on. When I spoke to Maura first, she said she wanted to tell the story
1: of a time when people took things into their own hands. She and Bernie were just two of hundreds that joined the anti-drugs movement in Dublin that began in the 1980s.
4: Further development in the drugs
5: war in Dublin's centre city this week. A large group of vigilantes visited four flats in
6: Ballybox. That report on heroin abuse in Dublin described as devastating in today's Irish Times.
4: It simply doesn't seem to be a priority.
1: This is a story that involves ordinary people living in ordinary houses and flats. And lots of people with lots of labels. Like drug addict, drug dealer, concerned parent,
3: drug pusher, Provo, vigilante. You remember that song? No. Build a bonfire, build a bonfire Put the pushers on the top Put the dealers in the middle And we'll burn the fucking lot That was the song we sang on every march and I was fully into it because to me, I know they were victims but we were even bigger victims of what they were doing. This is the
1: north inner city of Dublin,
3: hi, hi, Ballybach.
1: Maura doesn't live here anymore, so we're meeting in her friend's house. Her friend was involved back then, but she doesn't want to talk. Very few people do.
4: Last night, a gang of fleece four men burst into the home of Eddie Hutch Sr. in Ballybuck in Dublin 3. They shot him several times. He collapsed and died in the hallway. The reason
1: very few seen. people want to talk, uh, even 40 years later, is that where they live is still consumed by violence related to gangs that control the drugs trade. The Hutch-Kinnaghan feud has seen the murder of 20 people so far. 40 years ago, this community was under threat from drug gangs. But that time, they didn't stay quiet.
4: Human remains discovered in a burning car in a laneway in Ballybock in Dublin were removed for a...
1: It wasn't always like this. I came to Sarri in 1976. Maura takes me to where she used to live, a quiet residential street of terraced houses with little front gardens tucked away off the
3: main, busy Ballybach Road. Where I live in an old artisan cottage up here, and I, I love my house, and I love living here. Just, it seemed to be a nice, old-fashioned community. You could even leave nearly the door open, you know what I mean? It's that kind of a community.
1: This area has a mix of private houses and a high density of social housing. From about the late 1940s and 50s, flats were built right across the city to house people who were living in poverty.
7: Originally, I would have been from what's known as
1: Monto. Sadie Grace was from a block of flats called Corporation Buildings.
7: I lived in the north in the city all my life. It was a lovely place to live, and just the sense of community was brilliant. When I was growing up, I mean, we didn't have very much, but we had 17 children, so there just seemed to be always food getting cooked. But I mean, you didn't realise what you didn't have until you had loads. Yeah, we didn't realise we were poor until we realised we were rich.
1: (laughs) If that makes sense. Where previously there had been jobs for people in the docks and local factories, by the 70s there was high unemployment, low levels of education and there was a level of crime that was almost accepted in the community. Bernie Howard lived nearby in Sheriff Street and grew up in the flats there. All the women would sit out together in the summer having a chat and watch the children playing. Years ago,
2: Sheriff Street was grand. It was a grand old place. It was just like a little village all on its own. Yeah, no, it was safe enough to come into Sheriff Street, unless you were a stranger. Not strangers. I just saw people driving in, say, lorries with stuff.
5: They'd for the lorries.
1: Because there was no jobs. They didn't get jobs. It was an area that was a perfect seeding ground for drugs to take hold.
5: You had a sort of perfect storm of social. Deprivation.
1: Mick Raftery was from Sheriff Street too and has been a community activist in the area since the 70s.
5: The docks was gone, all of the traditional indies in was gone.
1: The disruptor to the status quo was events that were happening in faraway lands. In 1979, world events would have an indirect but devastating effect on these small but densely populated Dublin communities.
4: What this, in fact, really is. It's a massive voice of protest against the rule of the Shah. When
5: the Iranian Revolution occurred. The market was flooded with cheap heroin.
4: The jury found Dunn guilty of six charges of possession of drugs and having them for the purpose of
0: supplying others. His journey back to the
1: forecourt. Larry Dunn, from Dublin's Crumlin area, was already involved in crime, mainly focused on things like armed robbery.
5: People like the Dunns picked it up. They were able to use what they called runners within the communities. It was so quick to get young people given a pittance to be a runner. Like Larry Dunn famously says, Larry doesn't carry. And they were able to give heroin samples free.
4: Gardie raided his corporation house. They found heroin, cocaine and cannabis resin. Although unemployed, he had
0: moved to a luxury home in the Dublin mountains worth in the region of £100,000. And the Gardy told the court that he
1: had This was the birth of the drugs trade, not just in Dublin, but in Ireland. Highly addictive heroin grown thousands of miles away in the fields of Iran, Afghanistan and Pakistan were now being distributed, first of all, on the south side of Dublin in a flat complex called St. Teresa's Gardens. In 1981, it was introduced to
7: the north side and it started a change that would affect everybody there. I think it takes the whole sense of community away because I think what happens is people become to get scared and they get afraid.
3: I lived here for nearly 20 years and I, I wouldn't go into the flats. They were so riddled with drugs. And it was very good. People lived here, I want to say that, but there's no chance. I was all, all neglected, there was no facilities. Once the drugs took over, they took over all this area and the drug dealers ruled the place. Ruled the place were an iron fist. People were afraid to move, afraid to say anything because they were violent. It was just a wild west almost.
1: One of the first places on the north side to be affected was the Hardwick Street Flats, opposite the Temple Street Children's Hospital. In 1982 the local parish priest and a group of women that lived there got together to try to figure out what they were going to do about it.
6: This sort of coarse and dark cloud began to come over communities. Christy Burke was originally from those flats. Come into the 80s and my mother and other women used to say to me, it's terrible here with people coming from the country, parking their cars and bringing their sick children to the hospital and their cars are getting broken into. And I was saying to my mother at the time, and is it locals? Oh, God, yeah, you would know them all, yeah. They're threatening women if they park the car, give us £100 or it won't be there when you come back. And we're looking out the window and we're watching all this and there's nobody doing anything.
1: Early 1980s Ireland was a time of bleak recession, but being a drug addict was an expensive
4: business. Well, now, how much a day does it cost you to feed your habit? Probably £100. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Well, where do you get £100 a day? I couldn't say that. <laughs> Have you sold drugs to other people? I couldn't say that, you know.
3: We're standing here on what was called
1: Handbag Corner. Moore is standing at the bottom of Clonleaf Avenue in Ballybock, about a five-minute walk from Crook Park.
3: What was happening here, Handbag Corner, was the cars were coming down from the port, and, of course, they had to stop at this corner, and they were grabbing handbags out or through the windows. And then when the the window was open, they were throwing dead rats in. And the women, of course, had run out in a panic and they'd grabbed uh, bags. I saw the community guard standing over there, across the road from where we are now. And I said, why are you standing here? I said to him, the handbags are getting robbed over here. And he said, darn with me for a minute now. He said, watch this. And sure enough, huge big stones came flying across the road at him. You couldn't see what he was doing because they're hiding behind the walls of the flats and that. And he said, that's the reason I'm not standing this outside, he said. I mean, there was one community guard, and there was nothing else here to protect the community. And they were dealing on the corners, they were dealing at the bus stops. It was lawless. It was like lawless cowboy land, you know. It was crazy stuff going on.
1: Those women in Hardwick Street wanted to do something. They wanted to stop people dealing drugs in their area, and with them was parish priest Father Jim Smith, who spoke to RTE's Today Tonight.
6: But nothing happens until the local people get involved. That's my personal belief. We need a special criminal court to deal with the big pushers. No jury will convict the big pushers.
1: But a priest and a group of mothers weren't really a match for drug-dealing criminals who had guns and weren't afraid to use them. Another armed force designated a terrorist organisation in the UK and an illegal organisation in the Republic of Ireland did have guns, and Christy Burke was part of it.
6: Went into Derry in 69. Used to do the barricades there. Got caught then in an IRA training camp. Was in Mount Joy. And we were all shifted then to Port Leisha, came out and continued to be involved in the IRA and it was an active volunteer.
1: That's why, in 1982, Christy got a knock on the door. The local
6: parish priest, father, Jim Smithy, lived in the flats. He said to me, Christy, we have a serious problem in the flats. We need help. And he said, it's about drug dealers. And I remember saying to him, sure, maybe you should go to the police. No, he said, Christy, um, a group of women met in the flats this morning who would be good friends your family and your mother, and they said, go see Christy Burke. Well, I said, I, I'd have to speak to others, superiors up the chain of command. But I said, I will let you know. So I went to, to the command structure of the IRA and said, look, there's a heroin problem in the flats, and uh, the local residents want me to become part of the residence group. And I remember the person I spoke to said, Oh, look, Christy, leave, that's politics, you know, and we're not engaged in it, nothing to do with us. But I said, I'm not prepared to stand idly by and watch people in where I'm born and where, where my mother lives being threatened. Oh, they said, OK, well, look, go on and check her out. So I went along that night to Father Smith, and I said, yeah, I'll come on board. He said, well, uh, there's a group of women, we're going to meet them now in a bed sitting in Hardway Street. And when I went in, the first thing I said, I said, well, what do you call yourselves? And they were all looking the Hardwick Street red, and all. So I said, um, "Well, why don't you call yourself the Concerned Parents? Because that's what you all are." And Father Smith said, "That's a good name."
1: And so, Concerned Parents Against Drugs was born. Together with the founding women and Father Smith, local fathers and community activists also joined. Ned Haney was part of it and talked to RTEs today tonight when they visited.
4: You can't get rid of something overnight, but we have every intention to go all the way we can to put a stop to this drug pushing in the flats. Do you know who the people are who are pushing the drugs? Well we know who they are, but uh, not committed to say that,
1: you know. So uh, I think we've got to leave that as it is. The newly formed concerned parents against drugs decided to take immediate action. That night, a letter went out
6: to four or five drug dealers living in the area, that a public meeting has been held in the girls' club. That was a club in Hardwick Street. And you're more than welcome to come along. It's in connection with heroin that's being distributed. And uh, if you come along, we'd like you to cease selling and be part of the community. Or if you don't come along, we take it. You want to continue selling and you won't be part of the community. So I think there was one came along. He said he wouldn't deal and he'd like to da-da-da-da-da. And that was accepted. So the ones that didn't come along was suggested we should maybe go visit them now. No time like the present. Uh, now, I knew this was kicking. Now, remember I said, I'm a member of the Republican movement. It's in your interest to do this in a dignified, peaceful way. And if it goes any other way, you will be accused of being vigilantes or IRA supporters. So the first one we knocked on the flat was belonged to two sisters. We said, you're more than welcome to stay in the community if you see selling gear heroin. If you do continue, well, you're going to be asked to leave. If you don't leave, regrettably, we're going to take out your furniture and tell you you're not welcome. They said no, they weren't going. And with that, a group of the women and men walked into the flat and started taking their furniture out. And they came out and the door was pulled. They left. Three of the other flats that we knocked at, the dealers were gone. So it seemed to work that the word was out that it wouldn't be tolerated. Here was a good start.
1: This was the beginning of a movement that would last for another 15 years. Heroin was on the rampage through the city.
0: Now to the soaring problem of heroin abuse in Dublin. In a north inner city district, more than one youth in every ten is addicted to heroin. In
1: 1983, the Bradshaw report on the misuse of drugs in Ireland was released. You
7: had a Bradshaw report. And that said... You know, that the government needed to look at areas like the north in the city.
0: This part of Dublin, apparently, is worse in some ways than Harlem
7: in New York. And that if something wasn't done, that this was going to get worse. The report found
1: that there were 757 heroin users in the area under the age of 24. At that time, there were nine detox beds available in the National Drug Treatment Centre at Jervis Street. The heroin problem came hand in hand with the AIDS epidemic... And the most common way of the virus being transmitted at this time was through a syringe full of heroin.
6: Now at this stage, we're burying, people are dying. Now you were doing maybe three coffins a week. Three, three people were dying a week.
1: Mick Raftery was part of the North Inner City Concerned Parents Against Drugs.
5: In the 80s, when we brought dealers to the meetings, we sort of said, do you not see the damage that you're doing? And some of them would innocently say, no, I mean, we were just supplying a a demand. Like, dealing in this area was an honourable profession. Street dealers going up to the market, getting flowers and selling them on the street. You're a dealer. The transition from that to dealing drugs, for some of them, it it was okay. And some of them, when they realised the damage,
1: did stop. The meetings in this area got so big that they had to relocate to the local church.
6: We were meeting every second night in Lourdes Church. And at that meeting, there would be, again, a thousand. Mainly women. And the committee we'd be up on the altar. And we would have intelligence that was either coming in all the week as to who the main player was. So we wouldn't say anything until the last minute as to where we're marching. We used to use acac lights. So when it got a bit dark, they marched on a house, they put the lights on, and I believe it's an appalling, frightening experience. And it would be, please leave the area you are destroying it, we won't tolerate it, we know what you're doing, through Leo tailors.
5: The situation was so bad that it was fairly spontaneous, if you like, eruptions, because people were helpless.
0: The protesters were from the concerned parents against drugs movement. They'd been picketing a house in Cathedral View since Sunday night. The trouble started this afternoon when a number of them occupied the house and barricaded themselves in. They say the house was being used for drug pushing. The
6: spread of the concerned parents became rapid. From Dunleary Bray Inn, Crumbling Theresa's Gardens came to me. They asked us how we set up the structure. We were marching in O'Connell Street. We were marching up to the doll. I was saying to myself, this is an express train.
1: In February 1984, there were so many local anti-drugs groups They all came together under the Concerned Parents Against Drugs Central Committee umbrella.
6: About
5: 2,500 people marched to government buildings this afternoon to protest at drug pushers operating in Dublin. They handed in a letter for the Taoiseach Dr Fitzgerald. It was signed by the Concerned Parents Against Drugs campaign. Among their demands is a call for mandatory sentences for drug convictions, a special court to deal with offences, The confiscation of all assets of persons convicted and the immediate provision of multi-purpose detoxification units at Jervis Street and St James's hospitals.
4: No determined efforts up till now have been made to crack down on both the small-time pushers and those who supply those pushers. These people have to be dealt with, and they're not being dealt with. The
1: concerned parents against drugs were evicting drug dealers out of their communities. They set up barricades to stop dealers coming into their communities. They were marching to the doors of powerful, dangerous armed men and placing coffins outside their doors. These were audacious actions. There was one or
6: two members of the Hardwick Street Committee stopped on the stairs one night and a gun put to their head and they were told, if you continue to march and try to stop heroin, you'll be shot. I went back to the IRA and I said, communities need to be protected. Now they're dealing with, not alone dealing with heroin, but they're dealing with muscle. And the muscle have weapons. And they issued a statement saying that any community groups who are engaged in community activity and are interfered with by heroin dealers, they will face the consequences of punishment by the IRA. That was it. There was no more guns pulled on anybody.
1: At that time, the IRA were engaged in widespread bombing and killings, including innocent civilians, inflicting huge damage on society. Known for their brutal attacks, vicious beatings, torture, kneecappings and murder, the IRA instilled a fear in everyone, even drug dealers. The political party associated with the IRA were Sinn Féin. For people like Maura Butterly
3: from Ballybach Against Drugs, it didn't matter where the help came from. People knew they were there, against the drug dealers. I mean, we would have no chance otherwise. And it was Sinn Féin. Let's face it, that was the bottom line. It was Sinn Féin in this area. And clearly there were probably IRA men involved, but I don't care if it was Winnie the Pooh, frankly. I didn't care. None of us cared anymore. Who helped us? We just wanted to be helped. I mean, what do you do? Former
1: Detective Superintendent Michael Finn was part of the newly formed drug squad in Store Street
4: Guard Station. I remember saying that we have a common enemy. It's called heroin. Whether you're a Sinn or a Republican, whatever you are, that's the way I saw it. Christy Burke may have been involved in what he was involved with. I wasn't overly concerned about it. But there were those who might have been, if you know what I mean. Uh, Gerard Doyle of the Association of Garda Sergeants and
7: Inspectors uh, joins me this morning.
1: Many of those in official law enforcement were not appreciative of this particular brand of community action.
7: These vigilante groups, they simply shouldn't be operating. The danger here is that... uh, People wish to take the law into their own hands, commit crimes by so doing. And unless that's stopped, then there is the risk that this could be used by unscrupulous persons, you know, for for other reasons. And the, the whole fabric of democratic control in this country then is brought into question. And that's what we're very concerned about.
5: And because there was an overlap between some of the concerned parents and members of Sinn Féin, the cops were more concerned with getting at the political activists than they were, again, at getting at, at the dealers, you know.
0: Then, it was about 4 o'clock this afternoon, the Garvey moved in to arrest the protesters inside.
1: A game of cat and mouse was starting to happen, and everybody was watching everybody else. The women would be out of getting the intel on them during
6: the day, and then we would go and say, look, we don't want you to deal here, we want you to leave. But it was then what was happening was that if you were walking down the street with a bag of potatoes, I was getting phone calls to the office saying, oh, i seen a woman coming down, she £2 of heroin. And you go, oh, it was £2 of sugar. There was that, it began to sort of
1: consume people. Their lives were getting taken over with it. Former Superintendent Michael Finn from the new drug squad in Store Street led the charge in closing in on the drugs
4: trade. So I said about searches in Sheriff Street, you know, the blocks are flats. In underneath them, the cellars. I got keys for the locks of the doors and so and put people in there, left them there half a day until there was some activity outside or up in the flats. We got on the roofs of the flats to watch them. That meant climbing up onto the roof, into the, into the water tanks. So we devised all kinds of means and ways of watching them. Catch me if you can, yes.
6: I mean, I was sitting... A concerned parents' meetings, to be 50 or 60. And I was saying to myself, who's the bogies around the table? Who's the infiltrators? Cops? Informants? Drug dealers? Crims? Now you had to be careful what you were saying.
1: In the mid-80s, Mick and other members of the North Inner City concerned parents got an indication that their methods might not be foolproof.
5: We got information that there was this young woman dealing up in Mountjoy Square. The pattern was very clear. She'd be approached by... uh, kids and she was approached by men. We were going to take her and interrogate her. And I got a call to say, don't do anything, that that girl is in the rehabilitation institute, which was around the corner from Mount Joy Square on Charles Street. And sure enough, she was intellectually challenged. And what was happening was very simple. Her parents were dropping her at Mount Jai Square, thinking that she'd walked the rest of the way. She didn't, she was nervous. And she would stay there all day and kids were approaching her as if she was a a prostitute. Can you imagine the headlines? Concerned parents kidnapped mentally disabled young woman.
1: The incident was a wake-up call for Mick and others in his group. After four years of marches, blockades and pickets, the actions of the concerned parents began to die down.
5: Partly because uh, the cops did begin to respond.
4: It would require the arrest of hundreds of people over a period of About two years, I would say. After a couple of years, they ceased most of the activity in the city centre. Because of the persistence of of our unit, I think that we had really the only drug unit of consequence in the city at that time. There was not uniformity in relation to how the Gardaí approached the heroin problem in the 80s. The different responses left to different problems down the road.
0: Anti-drugs campaigners were out in force at Green Street Court again today.
4: In 1985, the law
1: finally caught up with Larry Dunn.
0: This time they had something to cheer about, as one of Dublin's biggest drugs dealers was sent to jail.
1: He was sentenced to 14 years in prison.
3: a hundred years he should have got. There's plenty more Larry Dunns around it, and everybody will have to stand together and root them all out. That's what I say.
5: They got Larry Dunn. And that was when he famously said, if you think I am bad, you want to see what's coming after me. In the late 80s and early 90s, the situation abated and then there was a sort of lull.
1: The concerned parents might have moved off the headlines, but they didn't go away and nor did the drugs.
4: They moved back out to their own areas or they moved into other areas uh, adjacent to the city, but outside the city centre.
1: Bernie Howard was a mother bringing up her children in this area.
2: I had three children, two girls, one boy. Stephen, he was the baby. He was very lovable, very popular. He was brilliant. I was up to mischief. I always had everyone laughing. He didn't drink, didn't smoke hash. I used to say to myself, oh, that's grand. i never thought bill be going on drugs.
1: New dealers moved into the vacuum left by Dunn's incarceration. And the 90s saw a new drug in the mix. Ecstasy, or ease, were the first drug to cross the social divide and the first drug to firmly spread beyond Dublin. The Irish drug trade was now beginning to spread throughout Ireland and with it a new
7: wave of heroin addiction. The 90s, that was completely different because it was it was children that you wouldn't have taught were going to go down that road and it was around the rave scene and around Ecstasy, young kids would tell you that you were using heroin to come down off ecstasy, and then they got addicted to heroin.
1: Bernie started to notice her son, Stephen, was changing.
7: They used to go into the raves when he was only
2: 17, 18,
1: Science nightclub or something. That's how it started.
2: He'd be bringing a set of clothes out with and I said, Just dance that much in the, in the dance halls now that your clothes are soaking wet. Now. Then he'd be bringing whistles out with him, and I said, What's he up to? He was taking a lot of his. He was because he used to ball night.
1: One day, Bernie went over to the flat that Stephen and his sister were living in. He was sitting on the armchair,
2: wrapped up in a, a big duvet, and I think he looked at me and said, I'm on heroin. Then I saw my daughter looking at him because she was trying to get him off. She was about to buy messages on the street. She didn't want me to know. He said, I'm serious. I wanted to kill everyone that was selling drugs. But,
1: Sadie
7: Grace also found out that her son was taking heroin. And then when drugs came into my family, people look down on you. My children would have been admired for how they were raised. And then all of a sudden they become this thing that society say is scum. And they're no longer what they used to be. The stigma was huge. And the shame of, of you know, having that in your family. I would have been ashamed to even tell anyone that he was on drugs. My husband's
2: family didn't know he was on drugs.
1: Maura didn't have children of her own, but she was a social worker and she was seeing firsthand the impact of the arrival of drugs in the city. I was
3: one of the first social workers on the night service here in Dublin. So I saw a lot of stuff going on. I saw a lot of the kids and some of the kids from here, they were being exploited sexually for drug money. The level of child prostitution was horrendous. Kids being pimped and having to pay money for drugs. And it was just appalling stuff. There's a small roundabout
1: on the junction between Sean McDermott Street and Buckingham Street. You could buy any
2: drugs that you wanted there. Anything.
1: St. Joseph's Mansions was a flat complex
7: beside this little island in the middle of the road. Joseph Mansions—that was notorious. Like people were openly dealing drugs on the streets. That was very intimidating for the community.
1: By the mid-nineties, residents were beginning to despair and one of them spoke to a visiting English film company.
5: There's no hope in this flat whatsoever. There's about 30, 38 tenants in this flat. And I'd say, out of 38, you'd have 28 drug, drug
6: dealers in the flats. Every second person in these flats are dealing in drugs. Joseph's Mansions was the main complex. Drug dealers always lit, lit fires in order that if there's a raid, they burn the heroin. So you had in the depths of summer the smoke coming out of the chimneys the chimney pots was blowing smoke from early morning so you now had the mules on the bikes and they would come up and down the street and offer you a menu whatever you wanted they had a radio control that went up to the flat down it came given to the mule at the gate he gives it to the mule on the bike and he delivers it to you over on the island that's how sophisticated it was if the cops were coming in the dealers had the spot so cops are on the way so by the time they got up to the flat the heroin was burnt so that meant no court case, no evidence, no nothing. Myself and others went back to the police and said, listen, here's the hot spot. You need undercover Gardy to monitor. So Gardy was put on. A recruit in uniform. So they were walking rings around him. The poor guy I used to be used to go over to him and say, Listen, one back to the station. Really wasting your own time.
1: They're laughing at you. They're selling gear under your nose. That's what we used to say. In nineteen ninety six. Drugs and crime had got so bad in Ballybock, where Maura lived, that herself and her residence
3: committee decided to go to the Gardee. Because of all the complaints coming to us about the drug dealing and housing being broken into us, left, right, and centre, and we decided we'd have a meeting with the Gardee in Fitzgibbon Street. And we met, we said they had everything under control. As far as he was concerned, there was no problem. It was nonsense what we were saying. He made us feel as if we were two inches high. That's all I can describe it as. And we walked home very deflated about the whole thing. And I remember this conversation come up. We were in Clontarf. We'd get a totally different response. We just felt that we were, we were going to get no help from the guards. We just felt, as far as they were concerned, Ballybock was a non entity full of people who didn't matter. Meanwhile,
1: Bernie Howard had her own family problems to try to deal with. And her 19 year old son, Stephen, really wanted to stop taking heroin. There was no treatment centres for anyone under 18. None. Eventually, she managed to get him on a detox program.
2: He's gone over a day getting this methadone. And that was a No follow on therapy, nothing. But then he had a slip and he just got really involved in it then. You know, he started injecting and all that. From then on, it got really hard. You don't where he is, what he's doing, is he safe, is he. Oh, It's horrendous. And the family. We were always close, and Stephen was close. But it can actually break families. I've seen it destroying families. And then you're watching everything all the time, you're putting your money up, you're
7: hiding stuff, you're... everything goes. It's a horrible, horrible thing to have to do as a family. And it's really difficult for families. Sadie Grace. But it keeps you very busy and where will you get treatment, where will you go? They told me that. My son had to prove that he was using drugs. And I said, but look at him. He's telling me what he's using. And they said, no, well, he needs an assessment and he will have to prove that he's using heroin. So I said, and what, how long would that take? And they said, it could take anything up to a month, two months. And I said, but what do we do in the meantime? And we had to buy him drugs for two months. And his father used to have to bring him, I never forget to Fatima mansions to score drugs every night. It was horrific for us. And we had to allow him to take drugs while he was waiting to get into treatment. We could have bought street methadone, which I often did. I remember giving £100 one time for a bottle of water because I didn't know what methadone looked like. And I minded it and cradled this bottle of water for a whole day and I brought it home. That's what it was. It was water I had given £100 for. So we didn't know as families. We wanted to do everything that we could for our children, but we didn't know what we were doing. I
2: suppose it we went down then for about two years I think he knew he was going really, really bad and he was looking at other addicts who were years' addicts. He didn't want that life. He didn't want to hurt us. And it was the 11th of July, July 95. He said, I need help. He said, I feel like killing myself. I need help. I'm suicidal. I'm going to kill myself. So we rang St. Vincent's Psychiatric Unit and Fairview there. And they overheard him saying he was coming off methadone and they wouldn't take him in because at that time they didn't admit anyone that was on heroin and methadone.
1: The human price of the drugs trade was incalculable. This is a community who felt abandoned by the government, by the Garda, by Official Ireland. The consequences were absolutely devastating. Consequences that the community felt no one outside of them was either talking about, caring about or doing anything about.
2: You just have MTV on. Because that's what they do, they sleep all night, sleep all day. So I, I actually thought I heard a movement about quarter past three. And I said, oh, that's probably him. I'll tell you again, I'm not going down. Just the next thing I heard was Noel ran up the stairs to me. He said, oh, the poor fucker's dead. I said, who's dead? And when he said, Stephen. Stephen had to hang himself. Oh, my God. Oh. I was screaming. He was after putting Stephen down. He didn't want us to the same. I mean, him he came down, he was just dragging him into the centre room. I was horrendous. Yeah. I remember it so clear. I go through every bit of it. And I know it's 24 years, 25 years early, but it doesn't matter. doesn't you just go through the same pain and I'm not telling him like that every single day, I'm not but when it hits you, it hits you hard I went into another world that I got so angry I wanted to kill everyone I just, he was a great kid there was a meeting held the following week and me and my daughter went up to that one
1: the meeting Bernie is talking about was a meeting that activist Mick Raftery had organised on the theme of decriminalising cannabis.
5: We decided to organise a meeting in the North Star Hotel and I was asked to prepare a paper on the issue of the link between soft and hard drugs. So, in my rhetorical way, I gave this great speech about decriminalising and the need to be mature about drugs. And Bernie Hard stood up. I said him and spoke about my
2: son. I said, well, he was going to pay for my son's death. We couldn't get treatment from him. There was no help. There was nothing out there.
5: She was still dressed in black. The incident hadn't happened that long. It was only days, I think. I was angry.
2: Very angry.
5: Here was the grief of a mother echoing around a meeting. She was saying, this was this my son. You know, I, I held him when he was a baby. I wasn't going to abandon him. And she did it so casually and so, uh, you know, full of grief, but wanting justice. You know, she was telling a human story about a human being. And we just, you I know, did tear up the speech and said, Let, let's respond to this voice.
1: Bernie standing up and saying publicly that her son Stephen had died had an effect that she didn't realise would happen. Unintentionally, she was the Kickstarter to a second wave of the concerned parents against
7: drugs taking to the streets. People started talking about people dying and then what we realised was there had been a number of deaths in a matter of about two weeks in a mile radius of about six deaths and we said, you know, enough is enough, we need to do something about this.
5: Bernie gave a licence to other people to stand up and tell their story. But but Bernie broke the taboo that it was was okay to say, look, our, our family has been affected and my son, our daughter, is, is strung out and we need help. Th- that, that was a moment.
2: So then we took to the streets, marches and everything else. I went then every march. I just got stuck into anything to do with drugs.
7: We had a big meeting in Rutland Street School. Hundreds of people came to it. And everyone was saying, OK, it's time now to get out there and take our community back. And we just marched a very, it was like... A procession, if you like, from the meeting around to Buckingham Street because that's where all the open dealing was happening. Just past this bridge
3: was where the marches all gathered all along there.
7: There was hundreds on the marches. In fact, there was thousands of times on the marches. This whole thing sparked up a load of rage and anger and what people were feeling was all of these horrible drug dealers and drug lords and whatever were living among us so... As we got together and got stronger as a community, it was decided that what we should do really is is name and shame these people. The community used to meet every week and then it was name and shame a particular drug dealer and the whole community would march on that door. This is the back of Hill 16. This is the old
3: handball alley and this is where we held a lot of our meetings. Maura
1: is walking around the dark little streets at the back of Ballybok right under the shadow of GAA headquarters at Croke Park.
3: A lot of the meetings there were, you could call them kangaroo courts, people did. We did have these courts, and we did drag people in front of us who were drug dealers. I remember one guy, and uh, I'll never forget this, he said, um, yeah, no, I don't deal in drugs. I said, we know you're a drug dealer. He said, either you stop or move out of our community. And he said, oh, no, 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 he says, I stopped doing that, I have stopped doing that. He said, I only robbed the handbags. And we said, well, you better stop robbing handbags too, because we won't have it. It wasn't a guardy stop the handbag thing, it was anti-drugs stop the handbag thing. Because you had to establish your own law and order. <laughs> there was nobody else doing it. I mean, that might sound strange, but that's the truth. That's how I saw it anyway. Who else was going to do it?
4: just into Charles Street Health Board office here in Dublin. How did you get on this morning, please?
3: All right. At
1: this time, RTE reporter Paddy O'Gorman had a series called Queuing for a Living where he went
0: out and met people in social welfare queues. I had a corporation place. I had people that met in the door and I just couldn't handle it anymore, so it wasn't fair in the kids So to move out then. But you wouldn't listen. They just kept coming and coming, so mm-hmm. couldn't put up it anymore.
4: OK. And were you a drug dealer?
0: No not of, even a
4: drug addict. not a drug addict? No.
0: It's my boyfriend. Like He is, an addict, he is yeah. an addict, yeah. The committee kept marching uh, on the, the door and saying they wanted us yeah. out, saying we drug pushers. A couple of days later, knock comes to the door and I wouldn't answer it because I knew like, it was the committee, you know. And next of all, the door gets kicked in. A few fellows ran in, told me to get out or else we're going to pull me and the kids out of it. Just kept roaring and shouting at me, smashing things.
6: We had a network ...of intelligence throughout the whole city... ...that i checked with someone, if they were from Dunora Avenue... i checked with Wacker Humphreys, how are they? No, they were grand, they're sound. Oh, him? No, he's dealing, she's dealing.
0: So we had a network. The same thing is happening now where I live at the moment. Like, the committees is all joined together. And just, yeah. There was things rotting the wall yesterday morning... ...when I got up out of bed and drug pushers in.
2: We set out at night and all... ...and stopped people coming into the air to buy drugs... There was crowds. There was absolutely crowds that was willing to do it. They still got a drug somewhere, though. We were getting called vigilantes. No, we weren't. We were concerned parents, trying to stop the drug dealing and trying to set up services. That was our main objective. Of course, you deny that you're a vigilante because we weren't. No, I wouldn't have called us vigilantes. Never.
6: Vigilante, yes, I knew it offended people. Didn't offend me. Was called worse. Couldn't care less. Job was getting done. And when you carried over 240, 250 coffins, I think the word vigilante is far from the pecking order to offend you.
3: We see it as protecting our community from serious crime. We went for help to the official sources. They did a deserted us. We tried to establish something to say we're not accepting this behaviour and you're not going to destroy our community. And we weren't supposed to be the people that went out and arrested people or to stop drug dealing. That wasn't supposed to be our
7: job. Once it's destroying your children, the fear goes out the window. I feared nobody because my children were being harmed. You didn't know what else to do because the authorities weren't doing anything. Nobody else cared and you couldn't live in the community if that's what was happening. Had the people listened when people were talking, it probably would have taken a completely different route. But I think it's because it was inner city areas they didn't care.
6: Morning Ireland at eight minutes to nine today. The first By
7: September 1996,
1: there were still new anti-drug groups being set up and attracting attention on the national media and by Justice Minister Nora Owen.
6: We now have more than 40 community-based anti-drugs committees in Dublin. Isn't that a worrying sign?
1: One has to be very careful about crossing
2: the line between community effort and community anger, which is perfectly understandable, and breaking the law. And I would urge people who are in these communities that are frustrated by the evil trade that's going on in their midst to allow the Gardaí to tackle the matter.
6: But whatever about their methods, doesn't there exist not reflect an anger and a suggestion that the, the forces of law and order, that the state has failed
1: them. It seemed nothing could stop this rising
7: tide of drugs, and it was defeating communities. Then what became obvious was that some of the doors you were marching on was doors of user dealers. So it was people who were selling drugs, but to feed their own habit. You know, if you were naming and shaming, it was kids who were caught up in it. That's not what people got into it to do. So I suppose that split the campaign and some of us realised that what we needed really was treatment services for these people. There was a huge, huge march and we marched for the miracle drug we thought was methadone. But what we didn't realise was that, you know, methadone has its place, but methadone maintenance just was a nightmare for families because it just kept people stuck. Her um, matter was... Pushers beware, addicts would care.
2: But then one day I saw an addict getting beaten up, which wasn't part of our group. And I said, no, that's not for me. But that wasn't the whole thing. It was to get even them that was selling,
6: get them in, let them realise the damage they were doing. The foundation of the concerned parents was beginning to crack. And I backed away. My main thing at the start was, all right, the dealers were an issue, but my main priority, I always remember saying it, was addiction. And
1: treatment. Sadie and others set about proving the
7: problem was as bad as they knew it was. We got 13 death certificates from families that we knew had died from drug-related deaths. I think three of them were recorded as drug-related deaths, where it was a very definite drug overdose. But some of them could have been death by hanging, death due to misadventure renal failure. So we said, you know, we needed to look at how drug-related deaths were recorded. So that was our ammunition.
1: Sadie and others, like Dr Joe Barry, succeeded in establishing a drug-related deaths index.
2: So Sadie fought very hard. You know, how many people died? That way you could actually say how many people died because the government will not believing us. I mean, we sat in the government bills and met, met all the ministers and all. They didn't understand. They didn't. At first, they didn't want my son's name to because I was saying, no, I wouldn't like his nieces and nephews to look at his death there and say, died from drugs. So I kind of resisted it for a while, but then I said, go ahead, if it's helping count too many people that have died from drugs, you know.
1: The most recent figures from 2017 show that in that year alone, 786 people died from drug-related deaths in Ireland. In 1996, lines were crossed that hadn't been crossed before. In May, a drug addict called Josie Dwyer was attacked after an anti-drugs meeting in Dauphin's Barn.
2: Some at the meeting labelled it a gathering of concerned parents. According to the prosecuting counsel in this case, George Birmingham, the meeting did not break up with everyone going about their business. A decision was taken, he told the jury, that they'd go and engage with people in the area believed to be involved in the drug scene. And three confrontations took place with Josie Dwyer, Chronic drug abuser who was HIV positive and seriously ill. Josie Dwyer was taken to hospital following a confrontation in Basin Street and died from a ruptured spleen.
1: The Good Friday Agreement was also on the horizon, and the IRA had been coming in and out of ceasefires for the previous two years. Veronica Gearn was
0: returning from a court sitting in Nace when her attackers struck.
1: In June, journalist Veronica Gearin was murdered by drug criminals.
0: They made their getaway in a white motorcycle wearing white crash helmets.
5: The world changed, in a sense, because the the criminals shot in public Veronica Gearin. And that woke up the establishment.
1: Over the years, the drugs trade began to reach all parts of Ireland, rural and urban. It was no longer just an inner city or a Dublin problem. And that spurred the state into action. The government announced an anti-crime package and the Criminal Assets Bureau was finally established. The Criminal Justice Drug Trafficking Bill was passed. Local drugs task forces were established to try to bring state and community forces together and establish local treatment and rehabilitation centres for addicts.
5: Some of the concerned persons or what was left of the concerned burdens, began to step down and to embrace the invitation to get involved in state structures, particularly local drug task forces. Uh, the first one was in this area.
1: But by this time, drugs and the drug economy had had 15 years to firmly root itself into the fabric of society. Today, the Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau is a specialist national unit within the Garda Síochána, responsible for proactively targeting and investigating drug trafficking and serious organised crime both within Ireland and outside of this jurisdiction. These little
7: drug dealers of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s that you're talking about are now very powerful businessmen who don't care, who have no morals. The biggest issue that we deal with at the moment, and the scariest issue that we deal with at the moment, is drug-related intimidation, where families are absolutely petrified and are been harassed. You know, their children are being shot, their children are being murdered, their houses are being... Petrol bombed. I mean, they're living in fear all their life, you know, because of, of debt that the children have accrued. I really don't know where that's all going to end because there is no magic solution to this. You know, you're dealing with very, very powerful people. I think what happens then is that people just start to mind their own business because it's so scary and it's so dangerous. So I think communities changed through fear.
6: You know, I know guys to sold their homes for 400,000. They moved out, had to sell them and hand it over. To drug dealers, because of debts that their sons and daughters ran up.
1: Maura left
3: the area almost 15 years ago. 2006, 30 years today I went in. It was sad, but uh, my life had changed. Ballybuck had changed as well. And I just decided it was time to make a major change in my life.
5: There, there wasn't one family that wasn't touched by the heroin problem. After the, the excitement of the 80s, the marches... The naming, the pushes out, the balance swung, I think, from that male sort of, let's get the dealers, to let's treat them. And then there was the feminine thing of saying, but this is about our loss. Some of the women said, why can't we commemorate our, you know, people who had died?
1: Sadie set up the family support network that is still supporting thousands of people all over the country. Her own son came out the other side of his addiction.
7: But I would especially like to extend the warmest of welcomes to all of the family members who are living with the effects of substance misuse on a daily basis.
1: Every year they hold a memorial service in the church in Sean McDermott Street, where the anti-drugs meetings used to be held, to commemorate the thousands of people whose families have lost in Ireland through substance misuse.
7: And especially those who have come here tonight to remember somebody special. We stand in solidarity with you.
1: On that island in the middle of Buckingham Street? In 1996, a Christmas tree went up there and the names of all the people who had died were written on stars and placed on the tree.
7: When the Christmas tree went up, it was just... I just think it was the most amazing thing that ever happened to the community because people started to communicate about losing their children and started to grieve. And the Christmas tree was something that they could congregate around, if you like. There is now a permanent
1: memorial to the hundreds of people, the sons and daughters, sisters, brothers, the mothers and the fathers, who have died from drug-related deaths in the area. Bernie Howard spent many years working with a local youth group trying to help young people affected by addiction.
2: About three years after Stephen died, I came home from town and had... A few presents and things for the children, Christmas. And my daughter was sitting there and she said, Welcome home, ma. I said, I was only in town. She said, No. Welcome home to the real world, ma. Was I was forced to
1: have It's twenty five years since Bernie's son Stephen died.
2: This is a picture of Stephen. I keep it in my kitchen. I light my candle every morning there. It was so funny.
0: afternoon's documentary on one we say you have to go was narrated and produced by nicolene greer if you've been affected by issues surrounding substance misuse and would like support please contact the family support network on 898 0148 or see fsn.ie. until next time thanks for listening